Amen. All right. If you will uh, give your attention here, before we jump into the sermon, I'd like to talk to our young ones. Our young ones here. This is how we begin every uh, uh, sermon. Talk to our young ones, let you know what the passage is going to be about, what the sermon is going to be about. So, young ones, let me have your attention. Have y'all ever said something is really unique? Like, if you use that phrase, like, that's really unique. Or have you ever said, like, this is very unique? Uh, or have you ever said, uh, this is totally unique? Like, this, you're not going to believe what just happened to me. Like, you probably don't say it like that. But, like, totally unique, or like, the most unique thing just happened to me. Have you ever said something like that? Well, it doesn't make sense. Because unique is just unique. There's no, like, qualifying, like, really unique, very unique. Because unique does not mean different or unusual, like this really unusual thing. No, unique means only one. It's either unique or it's not unique. Okay, like, like, back in 1942, this happened once. This is the only time this has ever happened. Uh, A group of soldiers in the Polish army, they came across a baby bear. And this baby bear started following these soldiers. And so the soldiers decided to adopt it. And they named it Wojciech, which means smiling warrior. And this bear just grew up with these, these soldiers. They were in the middle of this war, so the bear just traveled with them everywhere they went, started imitating like all this stuff they did, would wrestle with the soldiers. The bear started drinking beer and smoking cigarettes. He's like just doing everything the soldiers are doing. And then when the soldiers got to this point where they had to, they had to get on this boat to go to Italy to keep fighting in the war, the boat was like, the bear can't come on the boat. It's a bear. So the soldiers officially enlisted Wojciech as a private in the Polish army. And he got on the boat. Later, Wojciech was promoted to corporal. Because literally in a battle, in the battle of, uh, what was it, uh, Monte Cassino, he helped move artillery shells in the middle of the battle. And after the war, he retired and he moved to Scotland. This is true. This happened. But this is the thing. Like, this has only ever happened once. That's unique. Okay? And that's never going to happen again. Uh, Unique is like Pepsi. You know, like the drinking company, the drink company Pepsi. In 1989, Pepsi had the sixth largest military in the world. Because at that point, the U.S. and Russia were fighting. They were not getting along. And so American companies wouldn't accept Russian money anymore, but Russians love Pepsi, so they traded 17 submarines for $3 billion worth of Pepsi. Pepsi once had the sixth largest military, and it, like that's unique. That'll never happen again. Okay, so like that, unique, like that, the birth of Jesus is unique. It's unique, not like really unique. Ah, it's very unique. No, it's just unique because this thing, it has never happened before. It will never happen again. When we say, when we in the church say Jesus is unique, people who don't like that will say, well, no, yeah, of course everyone is unique. Okay, well, and then when we say Jesus' birth was a miracle, people who don't like this stuff will say, well, every birth is a miracle. And when we say, no, Jesus is the son of God, People who don't like this will say, now, aren't we all children of God? Well, okay, no. Like this Jesus, baby Jesus thing is unique. In the Gospel of Matthew that we're going to read right now, we read about an angel coming to Joseph and saying the birth of Jesus, 
this is going to be unique because what's happening is a virgin birth. There's not going to be an earthly father. No, no, you're going to have God the Father working through the power of God the Holy Spirit, and then you're going to get this baby. This baby is going to be God the Son. God the Son is going to come and take on flesh, and he's going to be born God-man, Jesus. Okay, that is unique. Never happened before. That will never happen again. His coming is unique, and what Jesus is going to do is unique because he's coming as the only one, the only one who can save us. Jesus came as the only one who can save us from our sins by living for us and dying for us. His coming as the only one who can get us back to God. Jesus is unique. This is what we're asking this Advent season when we look to Jesus' first coming and we're looking ahead to his second coming. That's what Advent means. We're asking this question, but whose child is this? Whose son? And then we're asking, like, and who cares? Like, okay, it's Christmas time and all that stuff, and everybody gets excited for baby Jesus, but, like, tomorrow, why does this matter? With that, please stand for the reading of God's word, Matthew chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus, the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Uh, there's this outspoken atheist, very outspoken atheist uh, named Richard Dawkins. He wrote, uh, he's written many books. He wrote, uh, one of these books is called The God Delusion. And this is what he wrote, this is years ago, but he said, uh, the 19th century is the last time when it was possible for an educated person to admit to believing in miracles like the virgin birth without embarrassment. So Dawkins advises us uh, that, hey, at parties, he says, at parties, never Never ask another person, do you believe Jesus was born of a virgin? It's not a question that's allowed in polite society. Not because, of not because of the distastefulness of evangelism, which he thinks is distasteful, but not because of the distastefulness of evangelism, but because the person you may be questioning really does believe in the virgin birth, but it's embarrassing to admit it. And you've put them in an awkward spot by asking them. It embarrasses them because... Their rational minds know this is absurd, so don't ask the question. Because according to Dawkins and others like him, the reason this was not a problem back in the day, back in like the New Testament, is because Mary and Joseph and the rest like them were uneducated about these things. This is why they could buy into this virgin birth stuff. Except uh, when you actually read the text, 
when Mary's fiance, Joseph, finds out that Mary is pregnant, he believes science. He believes nature more than he believes Mary because he knows you can't just get pregnant. He believes Mary has been unfaithful, which is why he plans to divorce her until the angel comes and explains everything. When you read Luke's account of this, uh, you read in Luke, Luke tells us about the angel visiting Mary and giving Mary this news. It, it's easy to, if you go and you read Luke 1, it's kind of easy to read that uh, and assume Mary heard this news about a virgin birth and just responded, uh, I'm going to give birth to a God baby? Like, well, I'm a virgin. Okay, but I can buy that. No, like, yeah, okay, it's true. Joseph and Mary do not have a formal education in genetics, but they definitely get the simple science of the fixed laws of nature. So when the angel Gabriel tells Mary the big news, she says, okay, listen, I get that you're an angel. This is really freaky, really awesome, but it's impossible because I know for a fact I'm a virgin. So they both ask the angel, okay, how is this possible? And the angel says, it's a miracle. This is the miracle of the incarnation of the Son of God taking on flesh and the person of Christ was born, Jesus, the God-man. Now, last week, we looked at this miracle from the point that God the Son is eternally begotten from God the Father. Now, remember what we said that we're using human language to describe the divine. You know, we've got to use analogy to, uh, from human experience to try to describe something uh, about the eternal God. And so just as a, what we said is just as a father communicates his essence, his humanity to his son, so God the Father communicates his essence, his deity to God the Son. Okay, that's what we mean by begotten. But that does not mean, here's where the difference, here's where the analogy breaks down. That does not mean there was a time when the Son of God did not exist. This is an eternal begetting. And as God the Son was always begotten of the Father, now, in the miracle of the Incarnation, there is, what one commentator has said, there is a creational projection of that eternal reality in the creation of the person, Jesus. In the Incarnation, another way to say it, there is a creational continuation of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, where the Father eternally creates his divine essence to the Son. And if you're thinking, what? Yes, it's mystery. And this morning, there's more to the mystery. Verse 18, we read this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, the angel explains to Joseph, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So in the incarnation, the father begets the son and... And in the incarnation, God the Father begets God the Son by God the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is involved in this fathering function. The Spirit is involved in the incarnation because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, this does not, you know, sometimes you got to say what you don't mean in order to say what you mean. This does not mean we identify the Spirit with the Father. No, there is one God who exists eternally in three persons so that 
The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son, and the Father is not the Spirit, and the Son is not the Father, and the Son's not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son, and the Spirit is not the Father, and yet the Spirit must also beget the Son. In Luke's gospel account of this, we see the angel going to Mary and explaining this miracle to her, and the angel says this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And what Mary and what we are supposed to hear in that are echoes of creation. Like from the very, 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 very beginning of the Bible. Like the the first verse of the Bible says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, overshadowing the waters. The incarnation is no less a miracle than existence itself. The angel explains this is going to be a miracle that the Holy Spirit is going to bring about. Using this same language that reminds us of how the Holy Spirit was engaged in creation, hovering over the deep and the darkness, and calling forth life, Jesus is the beginning of new creation. And it is a great mystery. It is a great mystery because on the one hand, on the one hand, you have the Spirit and the Son. In some ways, they are communicating the divine essence both as subject and as object. Sometimes, uh, this is what I mean, sometimes the Spirit, sometimes he's the object of the divine essence, like, like, we say the spirit proceeds from the son. It's the son, and Jesus tells his disciples, I'm sending the spirit to you. It's the son who sends the spirit to his people. Other times, you have the spirit in the first place. Like, like right here in our passage, it's the spirit who conceives God the son as a man. So Jesus is conceived by the spirit. Also later, it's the son who's anointed by the spirit at his baptism. It's the Spirit anointing the Son. Then again, later, it's the Spirit who's transfiguring the Son on that mountain when Peter and the other disciples are there and Jesus is transfigured before them and it's just too awesome to behold. Then even later, it's the Spirit who resurrects and glorifies the Son. And there you have the Son as the object of the work of the Spirit. Mystery. Here's how one commentator puts it. He says, the Son and the Spirit are each before and after the other, and each both subject and object in relation to the other. In the simultaneous, simultaneous eternal communicating of the divine essence from the Father through begetting and proceeding. Yay, mystery. But here, here's, a little, here's a little more. When, what we see in the Bible, though, is that God the Father is always the subject. He's never the object. Like the Father sends the Son and the Spirit. The Son doesn't send the Father. The Spirit doesn't send the Father. The Father is never in the image of the Son or the Spirit. No, the begetting of the Son is the producing of an image likeness of the Father. The Father, it's the Father who, here's another fun word, spirates the Spirit. And the Father spirating the Spirit is an effulging of the Father's glory. And the Bible says that God the Father is always, always the end. He's always the telos, the ultimate goal of both the Son and the Spirit, which means more mystery here. Like in that sense, the Son and the Spirit, they're the subject in the self-glorification of God. 
It's just, this is stuff we could talk about forever, and we will in heaven, uh, and still only barely grasp it. The Son and the Spirit are revelations of the glory of the Father, yet they reveal his glory, and they both radiate that glory back to the Father. So the Son and the Spirit are both eternally glorifying the Father, which means the Father is simultaneously the fount of glory, and he is the end of all glory. And we get to that question of, okay, does all this doctrine stuff really matter? Shouldn't we just focus on living a good life? Shouldn't we just focus on how to live a good life? Okay, to say that this doctrine stuff does not matter, it is a doctrine. That in and of itself is a doctrine. There's a doctrine that says this stuff doesn't really matter. It's not really important. To say that this stuff uh, doesn't matter is a matter of belief. If you choose to believe that what's really, really important for us is how to live a good life, that that is what will save you, that is a salvation by works. If this stuff about Jesus and the incarnation, this stuff that we talk about at Christmas, if it's just a legend, it will not help you. It won't work because here it is when you boil it down to if it's just about how to live a good life, you're not going to live a good enough life to save yourself. Even if you think this legendary stuff or this, this stuff about Jesus and the incarnation might help you. Live a good life, it's not going to get you all the way. But this, if this doctrine is true, what it means is you can be saved by grace. There was a best-selling book claimed to be evangelical, uh, the author Rob Bell wrote this. He said, what if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry and that the virgin birth was just a bit of mythologizing the gospel writers threw in to appeal to the followers of the Mithra and Dionysian religious cults that were hugely popular at the time of Jesus. Could you still be a Christian? Is the way of Jesus still the best way, and this is the argument he's making, is the way of Jesus still the best possible way to live? Or does the whole thing fall apart? If the whole faith falls apart when we re-examine and rethink one spring, then it wasn't that strong in the first place, was it? So here's Rob Bell, who says that the virgin birth of Jesus, ultimately, it's irrelevant it's irrelevant to you and to me because it has nothing to do with how you and I live. Because for Rob Bell, the gospel is about teaching you a way to live. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is not now you go and you do this and you will be saved. You're not your savior. And all of your wonderful, wonderful, your Bible reading, your prayers, your church attendance and worship, your Bible studies, your, your discipline, your discipleship, your good parenting, your community service, your education, your job, your wealth, your poverty, your sacrifice, that does not save you. Salvation is not a you thing, and it's not a God and you thing. Salvation is a God thing. It is Jesus who saves because he is the God man who has come to save. The gospel is Jesus was born to come for you, to save you at the greatest cost to himself. And, and tons and tons of people who are not Christians 
and even some claiming to be Christians will say this, you cannot say that Christianity is unique. You can't say it's the one and only right religion. Can you please just say it's one good religion amongst, amongst other good religions? Hey, Christianity works for you. Okay, fantastic. That's great. But don't say that it works for everyone or that it has to work for everyone. Don't say, and d don't say if it doesn't work for someone that they're condemned, that they're doomed forever. Why can't you just say Christianity is a good religion? One answer is this stuff right here. One answer is this baby Jesus stuff. It's the incarnation. It's the Christmas stuff. Every other founder of every other religion, every other founder of every other philosophy came and said, I will show you the way. I'll show you the way to God. I'll show you the way to nirvana. I'll show you the way to heaven. I'll show you the way to eternal blessing. Jesus is the only one who comes and says, I am God, and so I am the way, and I have come for you. And if that's true, then it's not a good religion. It's the only one. And if it's not true, it's still not a good religion. That would make Jesus a liar and evil, or, or he's just nuts. All religions are not the same. Nothing is like Christianity. And the exciting uniqueness of Christianity is not that some religious genius came along to tell us how to live with just, you know, just the greatest insights into the meaning of life. And we do love our gurus. I've got, like, we love our gurus. We love our health experts. We love our fave cultural critics. We love our fave political pundits. And really, really, I, trust me, I get it. Really, we'd love to show up and just get some life hacks every once in a while. Just some good application on how to live better, think smarter, be happier. But, but Christianity is not about God coming to show us the way. The incarnation claims that God came because he is the way. And the way to what? It's the way to him. Uh, you have heard me say this stuff at, at this time of year before. This is, this is good. Dorothy Sayers uh, is an author. Uh, she was uh, one of the first women ever to graduate from Oxford. She was a writer, and she was not particularly a uh, beautiful woman, uh, but she, she wrote a series of detective no novels about a guy named Lord Peter Whimsey, who's an English aristocrat. She, he's one of these gentleman detectives, like think Sherlock Holmes uh, kind of guy. And about halfway through the series, suddenly, suddenly in the middle of this series, a woman character appears in the series, and she's named Harriet Vane. And she's one of the first women to ever graduate from Oxford. And she writes detective novels. And she's described as being not particularly beautiful. And over a ser series of, of several of these novels, she and Peter Whimsey meet. And they get to know each other. And they fall in love. And they get married. And they live happily ever after. And people noticed that Harriet Vane looks a lot like her creator, Dorothy Sayers. And yeah, and here's the point. Dorothy Sayers looked into the world that she had created, and she saw one of her characters that she had created, and she pitied him because he was lonely, and she loved him. And so she wrote herself into the world that she had created uh, in order to love him, in order to make him happy.
and they lived happily ever after. And yeah, that's 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 really awesome. It's a it, you know as great and as as wonderful as that is, it's actually a pale reflection of what God has done for us, because God uh, looked into the world that He had created and He saw us miserable and He saw us dying. And he saw us headed for eternal destruction, and the divine author and narrator wrote himself into the story. Now that's Christmas. And here's where the gospel is infinitely better than, than Dorothy Sayers and Peter Whimsey. Uh, Dorothy doesn't owe Peter anything, good or bad, but God does owe us something. And it's not good, it's not love that he owes us, he owes us justice. Because after the fall, when Adam first sinned, the only thing God owed him and all of us was eternal justice, his just wrath. And our comfort in the midst of what we are going through in this life and all of our suffering is that the Son of God comes for us out of costly love, even though we have demerited it. That's grace, demerited favor of God. In the incarnation here, and with this, this incarnation, it shows us, it shows us something at the heart of God's purpose in creating the world. Uh, it is this, the song we sang earlier, it's this Emmanuel principle. It's this stuff here of this, uh, of this prophecy given by Isaiah of uh, uh, this Emmanuel will come, born of a virgin. Uh, you see, God, Emmanuel just means God with us. You see God's presence with us. You see this right at the beginning of creation. And that we're supposed to go back there in our heads when we hear the stuff of overshadowing. The spirit hovering over creation at the beginning. Think of it. There it is. Like there's the father's heart for his creation. There is our father's goodness right there. He was always with us. He was always going to be intimately with us. That language of the spirit hovering over the deep and over creation. It's the language of a mama bird hovering over and protecting her young. This was God drawing near to his worshiping creatures in divine love, welcoming us into his glorious presence. And then the fall. And then when our first parents fell, they rejected the loving embrace of God. We, if you go back before the fall, we had God's presence apart from redemption. We had him. But now since the fall, Here's the incarnation. The incarnation is a redemptive version of the Emmanuel principle. Now God, the Son, begotten of the Father and conceived by that same Spirit, he comes, Emmanuel, he comes on a mission of grace to suffer for our sins in order to bring us back to God, in order to get us back into the presence of God. Now, kind of circling back to this, sadly, frustratingly, it's become more and more popular in the church to talk about incarnational ministry. Uh, like, uh, incar we need to be incarnating Jesus' mission to others. Let me just offer uh, a, uh, let, let's not, let's not do that. Let's I want to discourage us from saying things like that. Because you cannot incarnate any part of ministry any more than you can repeat Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross. This miracle I want to say utterly unique. I don't need to say utterly unique. You know, it's just unique. This is it. This miracle is unique in history. There is nothing, there's nothing like it. And see, this is the greatest news about it is Christ 
did not suffer simply to identify with us. He did it to rescue us. We need someone to do more than just feel our pain. We need someone to do more than just teach us how to cope with our pain. We need someone more than to just teach us how to live a better way. Our problem's bigger than that. We need someone to triumph over our pain by conquering all that causes pain, sin, death, evil. Uh, we, need, we need God to come himself. And, and he comes. It begins at the incarnation. And, and his coming and his work is accomplished on the cross. And it ends with us, with him, forever. Let's pray. Father, we're not... We're just not sure what else we can do more with uh, the mystery of the incarnation by the power of the Holy Spirit than to proclaim it as truth and then to sit in wonder uh, uh, in its awesomeness. Uh, help us to understand. Help us to understand that you have come for us in order to be with us. Help us to believe uh, that it's all of grace. That this is, not, this is not our own work. That Jesus doesn't teach us how to get ourselves to heaven. That Jesus is the only way to heaven. And help us to hold on to that gospel today and then tomorrow. Because we're going to be tempted to forget it. And we're going to be tempted to run and, and, and to live like our salvation dependent, dependent on our own efforts. On our own works. Lord, bless us to continue to repent from uh, our, um, our, our self-reliance. Uh, and turn again to your son to put all of our faith in him, what he has done, what he's doing, what he will bring to consummation when he returns again. Give us hope for that day because you say it's coming soon. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. If you will look here to this table,